0: Welcome. Wonderful to see a a fantastic crowd here today um, in the Sydney Nanoscience Hub. This is the beginning of an amazing week as we open this building. Welcome to the um, Sydney Ideas Lecture at the University of Sydney, which is tonight the public event of the official opening of the Australian Institute for Nanoscale Science and Technology. I am Professor Ben Eggleton. I am a professor in the School of Physics I'm Director of Kudos, which is an ARC Centre of Excellence that's headquartered in the School of Physics and will have laboratories in this amazing building. Um, Before we begin the proceedings, I would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. So welcome. Um, The format for this evening is that uh, we will have an absolutely amazing presentation from Professor Eisenberg, and then we'll open up the floor to uh, your questions. We will have uh, two microphones um, that will be available, and we will be recording the event to... uh, Podcast to the university website, so please wait for the microphone to come to you at the end of um, the presentation. I'm also have been asked to flag that uh, there will be twitterers Twitters tweeting, so if you're a Twitterer, um, please note the hashtags and uh, follow the tweeting Twitter conversation that is going on hopefully um, right now. So, the Australian Institute for Nanoscale Science and Technology is delighted to welcome Professor Joanne Eisenberg to the University of Sydney for the official opening of AIST. And I'll just um, mention Joanna's uh, credentials and her background. Um, we know that she, of course, is a professor from Harvard University, and that's a pretty good school. We're here. Um, Joanna is director of the Cavalier Institute for Bio Science and Technology. She is the Amy Smith-Berrelson Professor of Material Science in the School of Engineering and Applied Science and also the Professor of Chemistry and Chemical Biology in the Department of Chemistry and Chemical Biology. She received the Master's degree in Physical Chemistry in 1984 from Moscow State University and the PhD in Structural Biology from the Weissman Institute of Science in 1996. She then went to Harvard where she did a postdoctoral um, work with George Whitesides. George Whitesides is an absolute uh, legend in the field and um, is one of the most uh, prolific authors uh, alive today um, and will be in Australia actually later this year. Her postdoc at uh, Harvard uh, involved micro-nanofabrication and near-field optics, and she established her reputation at that early stage. She then joined Bell Labs in 1998 in Murray Hill Uh, which is where I got to know Joanna. It turned out Joanna shared an office with a very close collaborator of mine, John Rogers. So I was in Joanna's office almost every afternoon, every morning. And this guy that I worked with, collaborated with, was one of these characters that worked uh, 16, 18 hours a day. So it was pretty intense for years, but I got to know Joanna and then uh, followed her amazing research career since then. She joined um, Harvard in uh, 2007 as I said, and is in the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. Now, Professor Eisenberg has received numerous awards for her contribution. The website lists um, a few dozen. um, And we had a chat earlier, and I asked, well, which of the dozen or so prizes and awards do you think is the most significant? And we converged on the Harvard George Ledley Prize, which is a Harvard prize given out once every two years across all disciplines, for outstanding research, so we figured um, to get a prize at Harvard, good school, um, that's given out every two years is certainly pretty amazing and exemplifies the outstanding track record that Professor Eisenberg has had over the last um, decade. So it gives me a great pleasure to um, ask uh, Professor Eisenberg to the lectern, and please join me in welcoming Professor Eisenberg to give this uh, very distinguished lecture this evening.
1: so much. Um, it's my pleasure to be here. It's my first time in Australia. And uh, just wanted to mention that my time as a postdoc at, uh, at Harvard was George Whitesides. It's where I worked with Andrew Black, who is here in the University of Sydney. And we together published two nature papers when he was a student and I was a postdoc. Um, I really... Excited to think about nanoscience, and I will try to give you uh, my idea of uh, what is interesting in nanoscience. Probably everything is interesting, but at least things that are really important to me and I think would make a lot of impact in what is happening in the world now. But um, before we go there, just for those who don't know how important nanoscience is, Uh, This morning, I decided to dig a little bit of numbers, and the first graph that you see here um, shows all papers published in sciences. And by sciences, I um, mean really all sciences, um, except political sciences, but um, uh, real sciences, uh, including (laughs) biological and uh, chemistry and physics and so on. What we see, and we all know, that there's more and more publications every year. So there's more journals, everybody's publishing like crazy. So over the last 30 years, as you could see here, um, the number of publications is a little bit more than doubled. So it was 6 uh, um, million in um, in 1995, thir- in the five years then, and now in, in these five years, in the last five years, it's 16 million publications. So overall, It's about 260% of increase in publications that we have. Let's now compare it to another thing and thinking about emergence of nanoscience. So now the gray line is still there. If you still see it, I hope you do. There is a gray line in the bottom of this graph. I don't think it shows over there, so I'll use... 160% increase in all publications. And now this blue line shows number of papers in nanoscience. In nanoscience, um, there was just something like 12,000 30 years ago. And now you could clearly see not twice more than back then. It's 140 times more papers published in this area over the last 30 years. It's really emergence of an incredibly interesting new discipline. Whether nanoscience is chemistry, or whether it's physics, or it's biology, is a question. It's actually all of that together, and it's something that clearly takes a majority of most highly cited papers these days take place in nanoscience. I want also to show yet another graph that out of all these um, papers in nanoscience, if I would introduce another curve and thinking about something where nana comes together with bio, whether it's nanomedicine or whether it's bio nanoscience and technology, you would see that this is yet another one that is growing a lot. Not only that bio and nano together was almost nothing but BIA plus NANA was only 5% of all nano papers. Now it's growing from 5%, 10, 15, 20. At this moment, it is 30% of all papers in nanoscience science are bio NANA. So what I will try to show you, in addition to many papers and many interesting presentations that I'm sure you will hear tomorrow and day after tomorrow, where you will clearly see beautiful things happening in physics, beautiful things happening in optics, in, um, in all the more traditional areas of nanoscience. I want to focus on things where biology brings a very interesting spin on nanoscience. So I will start with something that's um, really important to me, and in particular, if I were to think about a dream house. And if it's really imagining things, and if I would begin to imagine really what I would want to have in new construction, let's say a new building in nanoscience, I would really want it to adapt to environment. This is something we don't know how to do yet, or at least not that well. I would like it to harvest energy, I would like it to be mechanically strong, but not only strong, being able to reconfigure depending on the needs of that construction. I would want it to be able to collect and deliver water, to collect light, maybe I can increase this list more. You can add even more difficult things, things like self-healing, maybe even going further. Why not to have a building that would change color? Maybe just to reflect your mood or for any other purpose, um, would be really nice if it would have self-cleaning and um, uh, properties and resist fouling. So what I believe, I really think that if we continue this list in any way or form, I truly believe and I've done a lot of research in materials that nature produces is that somewhere, if we think about materials from the point of view of building the way organisms do, then we will have something unique. And most of this uniqueness is being able to understand how things operate at the nanoscale. So to me, a really interesting vision uh, for nanos bio is to think about uh, making materials, or maybe entire devices or houses um, based based on the principles of self-assembly, based on the principles when materials can make themselves uh, from bottom up, not from top down. They know they're predetermined to become something and they do that and they have ability to self-organize. And then, yet another feature, as I mentioned, to me at least, really important one, is dynamic uh, character of this. If we, Where to do that, if we can do that, then maybe going from molecules to nanoscale and then to macroscopic scale would be an interesting way to think about um, new science or new things that we can do. Uh, To do that, you absolutely need to study biological systems and at least a third of my group actually studies biological systems. And I'm not as much interested in biological principles per se. I'm interested in what I would call high-tech properties. I'm looking in biological principles that optimize magnetic properties uh, uh, that organisms have evolved, or optical properties, or or mechanical properties. So really high-tech features. How does it do? How does nature come up with the principles that are really generally very different from ours? Um, And then, maybe to add to this uh, adaptive character. What is happening and how materials that have a certain property can change this property if needed in response to environment. I can tell you, um, and it's just a, a small subset of things on this uh, slide, that a lot of interesting things can be done. I, I will only cover a very small subset today and I'm not even sure I will be able to go through all my slides. Um, really, nature doesn't stop surprising us with everything that we are able to learn, and trust me, we are not successful in most cases. But if we are able to uncover the mechanism of how nature makes its unique materials, every time, the key is nanoscience. The key is something very special happening at the nanoscale. So let me, maybe I will have just one chapter, but I, uh, I put a couple of chapters, but uh, chapter one would be actually what uh, you, s- you see in the title of my talk. And what I uh, would like to talk about, and let's put a slide, strange slide, because you will see very random things on this slide, and I will call it um, sticky problems. And by that I mean icing, you're in Sydney, probably not that aware of that problem, but we do care about icing a lot in Boston specifically. But not only icing, if um, and icing of all kinds, of course. Um, dirty windows, dirty solar panels, or maybe graffiti on some of the buildings, or something that is supposedly near and dear to your heart is marine fouling on the boats, that are staying probably in the bay somewhere. But let me add more to this strange list and I'll talk about oil transport or maybe about infestation. And of course, thinking about medical devices. It's a random list of things. But in my opinion, they have all one common feature. And, and this common feature is that although mechanisms are different, every materials involved different, uh, but there is Accumulation of unwanted material on the surface, and you want to prevent it. So what can be done to do that? Just to give you a little bit more ideas on what it means, I just wanted to put this slide. So if we talk about icing, on the left you see my group, um, and you see this snow pile that is about twice the, the, the size of even tallest members of my group that... Uh, um, that's actually last uh, year in Boston. You could also see on the um, on that slide. I hope. No, nope. no, even that doesn't work. That's fine. But what you see there—it's not snow piles. These are cars. You could see windows in these cars. This is what happened last year. And uh, um, aircrafts, of course, have this problem. If I were even to forget about Aircrafts and would minimize that and think about simply refrigeration and what happens because of ice formation in refrigeration coils. If I do that, I can tell you that huge energy penalty would pay for the fact that in refrigeration, ice is forming, you have defrosting cycles, you actually don't know about it because you don't have to defrost your... Uh, refrigerator, it's automatically done, by the way, twice a day for about 20 minutes, your refrigerator is being defrosted. And it's a lot of energy. If we, we think about um, the cost, you see it now on the slide. I can give you another one and going to marine fouling. Just I wanted to give you numbers associated with fouling problems, with sticky problems that we have. So if we talk about marine fouling, and depending which kind of fouling, whether it's a soft fouling or it's calcareous mussels, barnacles forming on the surface, just to give you an idea, that penalty, if I only think about fuel expenses, is about $60 billion per year. Yet another one, I will have a couple more, but I'll go to science in a second. Yet another one that um, makes me Uh, really excited about this uh, project because of a variety of problems that we have. For example, wastewater treatment membranes, yet another type of fouling. And that is just in terms of simply um, aeration energy requirement. It's about 2% of all electricity, of all energy, at least in the United States. Let me put another two and I will go to medical area. It's easy to, I don't even have to go through this slide. Obviously infections are associated with bacteria um, forming biofilms and uh, infecting uh, medical implants, and so on. But it's not even bacteria, if we think about simply um, blood transfusion, blood clots is a big problem. So what can we do if we want to solve it? Material scientists have a tendency, physical scientists have a tendency to approach systems and, and problems from a different perspective compared to biologists. Biologists love complexity. Uh, Physicists and chemists don't. We really try to reduce the system to manageable range of things that we understand, and instead of complexity, to make it simple, but potentially useful. To me, uh, what is important is to go to nature and see whether nature can produce, give us good idea of how that can be done. I'll show a first slide, done in the area of superhydrophobicity. And almost everybody knows that uh, lotus leaves have the property of self-cleaning because it has the ability to repel water droplets that run off the surface. What you see now is superhydrophobic surface where droplets jump off the surface, pick up uh, dirt, which is not happening when the surface is just hydrophobic philic, loving uh, water, or hydrophobic. Even hydrophobic doesn't work. So how does it work in nature in the lotus leaf? It works because in addition to being hydrophobic, the surfaces are nanostructure. So without this nano approach to surface design, lotus leaf and many other super hydrophobic structures in nature would not work as self-cleaning um, structures. Beautiful, but not useful. Why? If we think about application, and especially the terrible list that I put in my first slide, almost every time the system is challenged with more than just water, it doesn't work. If you try to do it with low surface tension liquids, let's say with organic solvents, it doesn't work. If you try to do it at high temperature it doesn't work. If you try to do it at low temperature it doesn't work. And there's many other conditions that high humidity will kill it. Superhydrophobicity works when droplets are on top of the surface. If you have high humidity you actually have a much worse condition when the droplet is now coating your nanostructured surface and has even stickier properties. The problem here, in my opinion, with uh, doing so, many, uh, so much work in uh, biological inspiration is that we often choose wrong um, biological system. Everybody knows about lotus leaf, but lotus leaf evolved its structure for a specific function to deal with water. Not with oil, not at high temperature, not with ice. So it doesn't work unless we do all fancy things with microfabrication, nanofabrication, and then other problems come come in which is extremely high cost and um, the inability uh, for these surfaces to to self-repair. So just, just butterfly wings that are also super hydrophobic Tells us uh, just a nice demonstration how superhydrophobicity fails. On the uh, right wing, you have a regular surface, and both surfaces are regular, but I'm dropping water on it, and you could see it is repelled from the surface. On the left wing, I use alcohol. Butterflies didn't evolve to drink alcohol. They're not us. And you could see that this is not repelled from the surface, it infiltrates the wing. Um, I will come back to that in some other uh, later in my talk. But what it tells you that the system superhydrophobicity is likely not to work. It's a wrong biological inspiration. Let's look for something else. Also a plant, but a different plant. This is carnivorous plant. Um, it on a dry day doesn't want to eat. On a wet day, it has very high appetite. So the same ants um, that are crawling on this plant in a dry day, now on a wet day, cannot stay put on the surface. They slide inside the stomach digestive juices of this plant. And this carnivorous plant, compared to many other carnivorous plants that do it by mechanical action, doesn't have to do anything. The food is just sliding into the stomach when they need. So what is happening in this system? So if we first think about um, insects, they they have two ways, at least two ways, how they attach to surfaces, how they um, uh, the the ability to crawl on the surface, to move on the surface. One is uh, a little bit simple, at least uh, uh, for a chemist less interesting, which is, hooks that they just get hooked on the surface and it's shown in the top uh, left. Um, But much more importantly, they have another way to do it. If we look in the surface of teacher plant, it's also nanostructured, it's also nanoscience. And in fact, the structurally, purely structured is very similar to many superhydrophobic surfaces that you could find in lotus leaf and, and in, in other superhydrophobic um, biological systems. But it's not hydrophobic, it's hydrophilic. So what happens now when you have structured, nanostructured surface with hydrophilic surface? What happens then is that on a wet day, it picks up a layer of water. What happens then is that this layer of water covers the underlying solid, creating a slippery surface, and the oily feet of um, of the ant. Now you create oil water interface, and of course, oil water interface is highly slippery. So now they have no contact with the underlying solid, and that idea of coupling hydrophilic nanostructured surface with a liquid to provide a liquid layer gives a very nice idea how to deal with systems that are different from water. The feet here are oily feeds, so at very least, we can solve the problem how to repel other materials other than water, but we can do much more than that. So what we've done with that is to think whether nature has more examples of this. And in fact, it's Everywhere, And the idea that I uh, would like to mention is idea of surfaces that protect themselves from things that they don't want to attach uh, by creating a structured surface with liquid interface. If we look at things that are happening in, in our stomach, in, in our gut, um, all the things that are going through our gut, don't see the surfaces, the walls of the gut. These are, by the way, also nanostructured, but they're coated with a mucus layer so that bacteria or everything else out there cannot attach to mucus layer and transport it nicely um, through the system. In fact, what we have in our eyes is the same idea. You have a system where a coating, in this particular case with with a a thin layer of tears, provides the way to repel dust from our surface. Or if we think about fish um, that is swimming in the ocean, the way the scales are designed is that you have nanostructured scales that are coated with mucus, different mucus from the one that we have in our stomach. But again, you have the same idea of a surface that is structured in such a way that can pick up um, a liquid that protects the surface from other unwanted media. So what we've done with that is that we uh, created what was really stealing from nature the idea. And we call it slips. It's slippery liquid infused porous surfaces. And I'm pretty much sure that these surfaces are perfect. And perfect in a sense that they actually take care of all the negative things that I put on the first slide uh, that Superhydrophobic surfaces cannot solve for us. Um, they're pressure-stable. Superhydrophobic surfaces, you squeeze your uh, droplets of water through the air, and it fails. They are also energy-saving. I'll show you a couple of examples. Incredible feature that they are repairable. They're self-repairable, and many other things that I can mention. So how to make it? It's very easy to make because in some ways, the way it is done is counterintuitive. We want to prevent attachment to surface, so we want the surface to be extremely smooth, so there are no attachment pinning points on the surface. But we get to extremely smooth surface by creating roughness, and in particular, nano-roughness. So I need nanostructured surface. But the function of this surface is to hold lubricant and not to be exposed at the interface. Why it works is that by chemical functionalization of a surface, one can create conditions that the lubricant is stabilized inside the network. Now, in the uh, case of pitcher plant, it's hydrophilic surface with water. We don't have to do that. We can have hydrophobic surface with oil, for example, or we can match the chemistry the way we want. And in addition to that, we can choose porosity, and in particular, nano porosity such that capillarity in this system provides extremely high retention force. So now it's really difficult to squeeze out this lubricant out of your... Um, nanoscopic network. So it becomes almost nanofluidic um, environment. And the outcome of that is that the surfaces, the um, material, the solid material, is being covered with a liquid. Now, there's, of course, rules how you do it, just to give you an idea of self-repair and self-healing properties. Since it's the active part is a liquid, and this liquid is designed to love your surface through chemistry, chemical uh, modification, through um, nanostructuring that you use, it means that when you cut it, when you scratch it, you just have the liquid flow into these areas, and the material self repairs. So what you see now on on top is super hydrophobic surface. This is a droplet of crude oil on a super hydrophobic surface. It doesn't move at all. Um, on the bottom. We actually cut it and you could see that uh, not only that the droplet is moving around, doesn't leave any sign of of oil trace on the surface, but it recovers immediately after damage. The other interesting thing that you can design components of the system, either solid that you use or lubricant that you use, um, so that it can work at conditions where other things may not. So for example, what if I want to do it at very high temperature. So again, what this slide shows on the left is super hydrophobic, the Teflon um, surface where you could see that oil is boiling on this surface. So high temperature, and super hydrophobic surface doesn't work. It's actually much worse, as I mentioned, than a really a flat surface. But you can design um, materials that withstand high temperature and as you could see on the right, it oil droplet runs off on the surface without contamination and it can be done at high temperature. It can be done at low temperature. You will just choose a different lubricant or different uh, lengths of the molecule or character of the, or of the molecule that you use as your lubricant in your system. What you see here is our work that we were doing. I'll show up more examples of that on how to prevent um, frost formation in refrigeration and in 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 aluminum coils and on the left it's the same plate. On the left it is not coated, uh, doesn't have the um, slippery coating. On the right it does. Um, it's sitting, it's about minus five degrees and highly humid environment will, um, and you could see ice frost forming on one side and no frost nothing forming on the slippery surface so you can design it to do that you can do other things um, and I tried it before unfortunately this wonderful DBS Nova program in Boston they were filming how these work somehow this movie doesn't work but I'll show you what I mean by that talking about graffiti this is something that Harvard really didn't like when I did that So here is um, half of Harvard logo was coated with slippery surface, and uh, the um, graffiti paint was used, and you could see that one side is completely covered right away, and the slippery surface stays clean. Yet another application. Um, If we talk about marine fouling, um, this is algae. Most, if not all, marine fouling begins with accumulation of algae as a microfouling and then on top of that, terrible things happen and and barnacles and mussels begin to attach. Again, one side is a regular glass slide, the other side is is slippery and you could see that uh, you withdraw it from algae medium and there is nothing on the slippery surface. Yet another part of this marine fouling work um, this is a little bit old, but it gives a good idea of four surfaces that we kept in the um, ocean. Now it's already second year and uh, two controls that you see, dirty controls, uh, um, blue square is currently used um, biocidal copper paint. So it's biocidal. Our surfaces have no um, biocide in it but uh, they also don't form any fouling on them. So one can give more examples and uh, really one of my students said, that I want to go back to the original property of these uh, uh, plants. So what about um, ants? And we had an ant in our um, lab, which was very unpleasant uh, to see, but the ant was there to do a lot of experiments with us. So as you (laughs) could see, um, neither ant nor a a little bit of jam that we put on the surface at least to attract attention of of this ant could stay attached and they slide off. More interestingly, of course, if we're not talking about ants, um, is bacterial fouling. We now have much more results in this area, but what you could see in the bottom is that I'm comparing um, bacterial accumulation on regular biological materials that are used now and compared to the same materials that are uh, transformed into the slippery materials. And uh, on the right in the bottom, you could see that it's up to 99.9% reduction in bacterial fouling. And we we really have a hard time finding bacteria on these surfaces. Going further to blood clots. Um, what you see in the movie is uh, really actually another interesting comparison. It's really visual to see the difference between a regular glass, smooth surface. Smooth surfaces are nice, and glass slides are very nice. Um, and super hydrophobic part that is in the middle. And you could see that on the top, which is a slippery surface, there's no clotting of blood. There is no blood stain. It goes through as if nothing is underneath and then almost stops because it infiltrates superhydrophobic surface and then it moves on the glass part. Um, I will probably show you a little bit more in medical area going into a very specific application. It's not the only medical application but something that uh, interests me a lot is to think about materials that can be done um, with very difficult properties if I may say this way. Not only they have to be non-fouling because you don't want bacteria to attach to your medical um, devices, but something that has more conditions than that. In particular, what if my coating also needs to be transparent? So what if I would like to think about um, medical instruments where transparency and therefore optical properties are still not to be compromised and how that can be done. And in particular, the application that I have in mind is in endoscopy and in particular in bronchoscopy. And why bronchoscopy? Because it's one of the most delicate tissues in our lungs and it has blood, it has mucus, it has air, liquid interfaces, everything that can pote- potentially be difficult um, and you need to visualize airways. I was quite surprised to know that these procedures are done now in such a way that um, these cameras that you see on the right, this is a bronchoscope, they have cameras but they also have a working channel that is used for suction and irrigation because every second the lens is being covered with um, with everything that your lungs have inside. So you lose your visual field immediately. So constantly you need to use uh, irrigation, suction, and in some cases, the, the worst part I, I thought, would be they actually clean it over the walls of your own lungs, so, and that c- causes coughing reflexes. So we've done actually a lot of research in um, pigs where the actual bronchoscopy was performed on one lung with a regular bronchoscope, on the other lung with a slippery one. And what you could see on the left is that in all cases, the regular bronchoscope during biopsy immediately loses um, its vision, and it takes more than a minute to clear it by suction or irrigation, while slippery um, bronchoscope in actual medical procedure either didn't um, didn't lose any um, vision uh, visual field, or lost it for very short time and within seconds was able to clear up, and. Uh, just gives a nice example of what one can do with that. So I will probably, I'll try to finish this part because there's a couple of other things that I want to mention. Talking about whether it's difficult to make it. Honestly, really not, because as I mentioned, the nanostructure itself is critical. However, the, the perfection of this nanostructure, as compared to things that people do in optics, Um, or in quantum science or anywhere else where really placement of structures in a certain way is critical, here it's not. It's a secondary function just to provide the right porosity and hold the lubricant. So anything works as long as you get to the feature sizes that are good for you. So example that I have here is for aluminum. Aluminum is omnipresent material that is used in so many places. And the way to do it is uh, I, I'm a crystallographer um, by training, and I know a lot about minerals. So there is a mineral that is co- called bermite, which is um, aluminum oxahydroxide. And the m- way you do it, you just take aluminum in any shape and form, and you boil it. As difficult as that. So you pretty much, that how our complicated equipment to make slippery surfaces on any shape, on any size, can do with l- aluminum in particular. I'll show you other examples. So it creates a nanostructured aluminum surface. It's naturally nanostructured. It's exactly 100 nanometers thick layer that you then, within 10 minutes, functionalize with a chemistry that matches your lubricant. You can choose what you want. And the fact that it is a very thin layer, you can do it directly on aluminum, but aluminum can also be made through Sol-Gel method where you can spread aluminum precursors to future aluminum on the surface. And it makes exactly 100 nanometer uh, thick layer with about 100 nanometer size leaflets that I showed you before. What it means is that I can deposit it on any material I want And the fact that the feature sizes are such that it gives it not only transparency, but it actually gives it also anti-reflective properties. And what you could see in this graph, that um, dotted line, they are always a little bit higher than the uh, transparency of the substrate without our coating. So it's actually becoming more transparent because it's anti-reflective as compared to what you used before. So it can be used for optical applications. Uh, Nanoscale is very important because retention of a lubricant, as I mentioned, depends on the capillarity in the uh, system. The smaller the channels, the higher the force retaining it there. So up to, we've done experiments, that up to 10,000 RPM rotating and trying to see whether we can squeeze out um, lubricant out of these slippery surfaces, and what we see, that about 3,000 G that we uh, get in acceleration in these surfaces. If the surface is nanostructured, it doesn't lose the lubricant, so it's very stable. So let me um, just show maybe another one. It could be done by electrodeposition. Choose your method, any method will do if you can create a roughened, nano roughened surface. The next one is a pretty good example because everybody would say that if it's structured surface, it's likely mechanically not strong. So we developed recently a way to make slippery surfaces on steel um, using electrodeposition and using deposition of tungsten on nanostructured tungsten, very interesting geometry of this nanostructured tungsten. But what you could see on top is that you can do anything you want with this now slippery steel. Mechanically, it is as strong, actually it's a little bit stronger because it has a a tungsten coating on it than the steel itself. But in addition to that, you can scratch it, you can do anything you want to it. It still keeps its uh, anti-fouling properties. And we used it to try to um, use this approach for medical instruments, in particular for scalpels. I'm not sure that I will have enough time to show the entire movie, but the movie shows that, of course, scalpels, that when they use it, they're immediately coated with blood. Um, they also often move um, bacteria that is commonly on the surface of your skin into the wound and the scalpels that are made slippery from steel um, would not have these properties. We can do other things, we can make them dynamic. So since it's all about porosity, if my porous network is let's say polymeric material or a network of uh, that has um, elastic properties, I can stretch it or release it and by that I change the size of the pores in this system. What it means that I either have my lubricant on top of the surface or I don't. That tells you that one can design um, slippery surfaces that can switch on and off its behavior. So it can stop the liquid, the liquid can go. There's more interesting things there because I can actually recognize liquids by the strain that I apply whether it's moving or not, so I can actually use it uh, for detection. Last year, we showed that it can be used um, um, for uh, non-fouling membranes and for separation for oil, water, air mixtures. Um, this year, we um, show, we have shown that, um, just recently, we had a, a Nature paper that that approach can be used um, as probably an incredible condenser design for water collection. Somehow it doesn't show. Oh. Why is showing it this way? No idea. It was supposed to show a movie, but it doesn't. So it's fine. So it's about 100 times faster water collection efficiency that one can do. But there's a secret here. So slippery surfaces alone wouldn't work. What? Why I put this slide here is to show that interesting way to think about bioinspiration is to take lessons from completely unrelated organisms. And doesn't matter that there is no organism that has these properties altogether, but one can extract these and create interesting materials based on multiple lessons from biology. And in particular, this condenser design was based on three lessons on slippery surfaces, but it's only last part of it but also in a desert beetle and in the cactus design. So exactly three together uh, gave an interesting way to do it. So let me still go th- through a couple of other slides and maybe a little bit of my chapter two, um, where again, butterfly, I love butterflies, and I do a lot of research in, in structural color. Um, There's kind of strange title that I put there. It's about wicking and winking and drinking. There was a lot of drinking in that project and let me tell you why. So uh, so the butterfly that you see is the morpho butterfly that has a blue color, as you know, but what you probably see now that on the wings, uh, in blue color, there is only USAF, which is US Air Force, They supported the science, I needed to do that. But let me tell you what is happening in this system. Now, everybody knows about opals, and opals is a structural color. And the colloidal spheres there, and their unit cell, and how the distances between these spheres, their feature sizes, determine the color that appear in these colloidal um, uh, crystals, in, in these opals. Some time ago, and you see it on the left, um, I've done work on describing um, interesting optical system in a brittle star, and it's a close relative of a starfish, mm, that coats its uh, skeleton with lenses, and these lenses have the ability to change their optical properties during the day and during the night. And this adaptive property is done by incorporating liquid. So there's lenses, and lenses have wonderful design. I mean, I wish we would be able to make lenses like that uh, as nature does. But in addition to lenses, uh, the lenses are surrounded by a porous network through which the organism uh, moves pigment during the day when there is a lot of light to protect the lens from this light because the optical receptor is designed to function in a certain range of intensity. So it puts pigment on top of the lens so that just like my sunglasses that change intensity uh, depending on the, um, the conditions that, uh, outside, how bright it is outside. During the night, the pigment is withdrawn back because there's not enough light and they're really interested in to collect all the information. So what is, uh, what is common between opals and that and coming back to butterfly, where the color is also structural color. The color comes just like in opals from positioning of elements, not from pigment per se. So what one can say is there's something interesting about using liquid, at least uh, Brittlestar does that, Butterfly doesn't, but if I would connect them together, and I will remind you about the movie that I showed you before, where on one side, water is repelled from butterfly wing, but oil, in this particular case, um, alcohol, is actually penetrating the structure. And while going into structure, it is changing its color. And it's changing its color because um, you change refractive index contrast between these used to be structured material with air, now it's structured material with water and refractive index contest changes. And is it interesting for us? It actually is. We developed a way to synthesize uh, different photonic crystals uh, based on self-assembly, but we can do a little bit more than that. Not just to make artificial opals and these are actually inverse opals, in a sense that where there's spheres, colloidal spheres in the opal, I have empty spaces. And where there's empty spaces in opal, I have my material, it's all made actually from the same material as opal, it's silica. But I can do more as a chemist, at least a little bit of chemistry. I can coat the surface and functionalize the surfaces with something else. So it's not just silica, but silica with some chemistry. And I can put chemistry in different regions, different chemistry. So I can pattern chemistry into my uh, photonic crystal. What that gives me is ability to control where liquid will go and where the liquid won't. Where liquid will go, the color will be gone because it's structural color. So here's an example of um, five level encryption because I can put many different chemistries and depending whether you use alcohol or acetone or concentration of alcohol, it will reveal completely different messages because it will infiltrate different parts of this nanophotonic crystal. A lot of fun with that. This is my students really love to work with this system, and everybody comes with their idea. Um, the one on top now, you touch it. You know what that sign means, but it's not enough. You touch it again with a different liquid and it says do it. Here's another one that shows encryption that can be revealed. My name actually. I liked that one a lot. That was a student from School of Design saying that why not to use it as a bathroom tiles. When you take a shower, it shows a nice pattern. And when it dries, the pattern is gone. So it's reversible. There's a lot of interesting things you can do with that. Um, uh, fun is of course important. Uh, this is one uh, to do something with for Harvard to show that you have no idea what is going to happen there. Look how intense the difference in information that you can extract from simply uh, chemically functionalizing photonic crystal, and then using liquids that will go only in certain regions, but not others. You can do these in different colors. You can make art, you can make, a, um, I think this map that is shown here, altogether is about 20 micron. So we can do a lot. We can also think about using this for anti-tempering applications. And uh, the reason is that instead of just hydrophobic molecule to use as a passive molecule, I can use something that actually interacts with, uh, with exposure that it had before. For example, what if you have a package that is not supposed to see light? So it's not supposed to be exposed to UV. And then if it is, then the chemistry of your surface changes and therefore wettability of your surface changes. And depending on the color that you get, you can know whether your package was exposed to certain conditions. It could be either high temperature or UV. You can design it the way you want. And the project that we actually have now um, is with with Department of Transportation to determine the quality of oil that is being um, extracted from North Dakota because it's really a simple indicator Just put it in and you see number one, number two, whatever you want to see. You can really encrypt a lot in in, in your system and you can recognize um, a a lot of things and even probably more importantly, um, there's a lot of drinking as I mentioned. And that is on the bottom prize is our winner of our competition. This is the chess set where the color of each shot glass, Is determined by the size of colloidal spheres that are used to make uh, photonic structure. So it's, in this case, it's blue and and red. Um, But you have no idea which piece this is until you add liquid, and the liquid will reveal which piece that is. And um, the group is, of course, uh, playing a lot with these things. And and, um, in addition to that, creating different type of interesting demonstrations of how that can be used. So um, I would probably, it's only one slide, but I will show that, Um, dynamic materials. Um, We designed something that we called hydrogel actuated integrated responsive structures. Um, hairs because it does look like hair. So we make nanostructured surfaces that you see on top right but we embed them in an adaptive hydrogel that changes volume in response to different stimuli and you can have hydrogel that responds to temperature, to pH, to electrical, uh, to to different ions. There's many hydrogels that are um, developed and the way that would work is that now you have a dynamic surface. And here are demonstrations of how some of them would work. On top right, you could see a material that actually changes color as humidity changes. It's a real time movie and it makes a nice flowery pattern out of yellow pattern before. On the left, you see a pattern that depending on temperature, would actually reveal words in this particular case, just a word word. Um, In the middle, you could see a system that we are trying to use to design windows that um, respond to environmental conditions and control the light intensity, not light and actually heat going through them. So if you have temperature responsive gel and you have nanostructures coated with reflective material, let's say with gold, as gel contracts and it contracts at higher temperature, these structures lie down and become reflective and as temperature goes below 27 degrees, at least this is what we used, they stand up again and it is uncomfortable and too hot after 27 degrees. So it's nice to have a system that on its own responds to environmental conditions. So I will skip that, although it's a really nice system where we looked at optical properties and mechanical properties of a sponge that lives very deep in the ocean and developed probably the best fiber optical system I have ever seen. Um, and again, the structure comes from the nanoscale and I will finish with a number of those beautiful pictures, these are last ones. Each of these flowers is about 10 micron in size. And as you could see here, they're all the same here. They're all the same here, artificially colored. But in fact, we can make them really colored by using different fluorescent labels in different places. Here are roses, here's something like that. And the thing that I want to mention with that is that this is what we look at in in terms of self assembly and bottom up uh, materials design. I don't think that any of these structures can be made by top down by lithography. What we are doing here is all these flowers are made out of two most common materials, out of chalk and glass. There's nothing else in these flowers, chalk and glass and conditions that can define the geometry, the structure that the entire system will grow into, even without biology, but using interesting biological principles, in particular, in this case, self-oscillation reactions. So let me finish saying that I do think that we can... Build this dream house if we take all these lessons from different organisms, and the way is like it happening is, in my opinion, is actually multidisciplinarity is critical. Um, I think the combining nanotechnology with biology and physical sciences, and physical sciences include chemistry, of course, um, and tr- trying to take very interesting different concepts from biology, but looking into nano scale is where new systems, new materials, new devices, or maybe new buildings um, can be conceived and I hope that many of these would be useful even very soon. But overall, I do think that what is really missing um, is to try to look for unexpected and unusual properties of biological systems. Everybody does things with mollusk shells. Yes, we know they're strong. There are more interesting systems in biology that we don't know about. So peachy plant was better than lotus leaf, but everybody works on lotus leaf. There is so many interesting things to look at and hopefully, maybe in 1% of cases, we would be lucky to understand how it functions. And with that, I would like to say that by inspired nanoscience, probably solve some engineering problems, but certainly it is a lot of fun, and I do want to say that it's really an effort that combines physicists and chemists and biologists um, and mathematicians, and I would like to thank my group for making a lot of these things happen. Thank you.